Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead. You can, uh, we're going back to James. So you can turn to the book of James. Uh, if you're new, we go through the uh, English Standard Version, the ESV. So if you're on a device, you can click on that. You'll be able to follow along with us. I'm excited to be picking back up in the book of James. So I'm going to give us just for a minute here, just a short recap um, to kind of get us back into the flow of this book. We, we took a couple of months off for Advent and then we went through a, a series in January and now we're back in James for the next, uh, I think, three to four months before we dive into the summer. If you can even believe that uh, summer's coming with the way the weather is out there right now. But uh, just, for, so, uh, just for a little bit of a recap, James, uh, we know, was the half brother of Jesus. So he's somebody who would have grown up with Jesus. He wasn't originally a believer of Jesus. That happened later. Um, but he also came to the place where he became the leader of the Jerusalem church. And so when he wrote this letter, he was writing to Jewish Christians that um, after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension had, had become scattered, um, and they had found themselves now living uh, in all of these different regions where they were experiencing rejection and mistreatment and persecution, uh, ironically enough, by their own kinsmen uh, because of the fact that they had decided to follow Jesus. So they were, they were in the middle of persecution and, um, and, and, and everything that goes along with that. One of the distinct characteristics of James, if you remember, as we were going through it in the fall, is that uh, this is a fairly blunt dude, right? Um, James just sort of says it like it is. Um, he, he instructs Christians primarily in his letter and how to practice their faith. So James is a super practical book for us. Um, but he's saying the only way that we're going to be able to practice our faith in a way that gives glory to God is by applying godly wisdom to that practice. So in this way, uh, the book of James has sometimes been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. Sometimes when you're reading through James, it feels like it's all these little interconnected, you know, uh, loosely connected sort of Proverbs that don't necessarily fit together. And yet, as we dive deep into it, we see that, of course, it's all together. Uh, in James chapter three, which is where we're going to be this morning, I'm going to bump up to verse 13. And this is kind of the anchor for the whole series. And James says this, he says, who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And then he says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Then he says this in 17, check it out. He goes, uh, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So that's kind of what we're drawing from. That's the backdrop, as you can see, even behind me for this entire series is that we want to have the wisdom from above constantly be changing us, shaping us, conforming us deeper into the image of Christ. Well, that's great. 
So then what, what is wisdom? We say this word, right? And I don't know, you think of, you know, opening the fortune cookies and getting a little paper out. It's like, that's wisdom, right? It's these cute and clever phrases that make me go, oh, wow. And then I forget about them, you know, one second later until I open, you know, my ninth uh, fortune cookie because you just never can get enough of those things, you know, after a meal like that, right? But this is what wisdom is for us. Wisdom is humbly applying the knowledge of God's word to our lives so that, there's always a so that, so that God receives glory and so that our hearts grow in love and affection for Jesus and so that the world around us is enriched. What do they need to be enriched by? Well, they need to be enriched by the words of our mouth. They need to be enriched by the worship of our hearts. They need to be enriched by the works of our hands. That's the effect that God's word and the love of Christ has on us. It has an effect on us in such a way that, man, what comes out of us and what people experience from us is nothing short of the heart of Jesus. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. And wisdom helps us determine and discern those things that lead us on those paths. Let me say it like this. Wisdom is the ability to discern what is good and what is bad and then make godly decisions based on that knowledge. So a couple days ago, Melissa and I, on our day off, we went up, uh, we went up near Hudson to this state park called Virginia Kendall State Park. And maybe some of you guys have been there. Um, so something, you know, after hiking in the snow now uh, for 10 years, I, I've gotten so much better at being able to discern where patches of ice are so that we can avoid death. Um, and I don't know what it is. Melissa, Melissa even told me this morning, she said, you, you've gotten, like, you've acquired this weird phobia about patches of ice. And I said, because I don't just see ice on the ground, I, I see death on the ground. And, it's, and I'm, a, I'm fearful of that, that's hard for me. But, um, but, but I've gotten better at, you know, kind of as we're making our way down the path and looking going, whoa, let's walk around that because I can detect what it looks like and, and the color of it and what it looks like. I remember one time um, before I was experienced in my snow hiking, I remember one time Em and I just literally went just toppling down this hill and it was the most, fearful and painful experience of my life. Um, but I've grown in discerning um, what those ice patches look like so that I can guard myself against dying on them. You know, the other thing is that I've also grown in discerning where some of the beauty exists in these state parks, especially during the winter. Like even yesterday, we're walking, we're walking slowly and we stopped and Melissa goes, she goes, did you see that bird over there? And it's like these birds, they tend to kind of like, they, they tend to stay low. They tend to stay out of the trees. And we, we just find these birds that have all these crazy, just dazzling dynamic colors that we usually don't see at other times of the year. So we've, we've learned to look for that, to be able to discern some of that beauty because we've spent so much time hiking through the woods um, in, in the winter. Wisdom is, is like that in a way. It's being able to discern what's good and discern what's bad and then make the best decisions based on that knowledge as a way to keep ourselves safe, as a way to acknowledge what it is that God is doing in the world, as a way for other people to benefit from our growing faith in Christ, as a way to behold God's beauty. 
Wisdom is what brings us into the realm of all of those things. Wisdom is discernment. So today, like I said, we're diving back into James, James chapter three, where he's going to give us some words of wisdom and some specific instruction for those who teach in the church. So in some ways, this is a message I'm preaching to myself uh, just in front of you all. Um, some of you are going to be like, finally, you're going to know how we feel every week. Preach, brother. I want to I hear this thing preached loud. I'm going to get more amens than I've ever gotten before, uh, hopefully, this morning for sure, right? Um, but here's the big idea uh, for us this morning. James is warning those who desire to become teachers that they will be more strictly judged. So they need to be people of integrity who preach what they practice and uh, don't worry, there's something here in the way of, of wisdom and application for those of you who have no aspiration to become teachers. But here's what James says in chapter three, verse one. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man who also able also to bridle his whole body. So that's what we're going to do today is we're just going to center on those two verses and ask the question, what is James driving at here? Well, I think there's a couple of things and it's that teachers, those who aspire to be teachers, they need to understand first off that teaching God's word, it carries weight and it carries responsibility. So as we look here at verse one, the first thing that we want to acknowledge here is that James is not saying that the church needs less teachers, right? When he says not many of you should become teachers, we're just trying to shrink it, man, because there's too many of you that are trying to take that job and we only have so many slots available. That, that's not really what James is trying to say. He's warning actually here that teachers will be judged with greater strictness. So for those of us who aspire to be teachers, we want to teach, we feel like maybe that's a, a gifting or a calling, James is saying, well, hold on. You need to think about what the implications are for those that teach and preach God's word. They will be judged with greater strictness, which means we need more teachers who have a greater understanding of the kind of heart and humility and self-awareness that needs to be behind the words that they teach. Well, okay, what is the reason for that? Well, the reason for that is that words matter. Words are the very things that form minds and shape hearts. Man, you can just think about the ways people are formed and shaped by teachers. Think of your own experience with that. How many of you had a, have had a teacher at some point in your life or, or, or somebody who had that role in your life that saw a particular gifting in you and encouraged you to pursue a path that just absolutely changed the course of your life? Any of you guys have that experience? Somebody just saw something in you, they encouraged you in that, and it literally changed what you stepped into, and now you look back and you go, it was because of what they said that changed everything that I did after that. I remember the first time somebody told me they thought I should preach. You know, you just keep your comments to yourself on that one, right? But I remember the first time that happened, it was one of those moments of epiphany for me um, and then I also remember uh, later on when one of my seminary professors told me, and I quote, 
you have good communication skills, Ronnie, but I have no idea what passage you just tried to preach, right? It was one of these things where I had to stand up in front of a class and preach a message. He goes, man, you're a great communicator, except for the fact that I have no idea what you just said. It's like, well, help me understand that. Um, But it was that kind of encouragement and also that kind of warning that allowed me to have a deeper understanding of what it is that I was stepping into as a teacher, which is that words matter and that words carry a particular kind of weight and a particular kind of responsibility, um, especially given if you're somebody who is going to open God's word and say, this is what God is saying. So we need teachers who understand um, that words carry weight, that words carry a particular kind of responsibility. And because of that, um, teaching God's word, it calls for self-examination. James says, for we all stumble in many ways. Eugene Peterson, pastor who died a few years ago, He made this quote. He said, every congregation is a congregation of sinners. And then he said, as if that weren't bad enough, they all have sinners for pastors, right? So I I hate to break it to y'all, and I'm probably not. And if this surprises you, I've been doing it all wrong, but I'm a heck of a sinner. That's what you got. That's what you got for you. That's what you got going for you on Sundays is one heck of a sinner of a preacher and a pastor. Now, By God's grace, I sin less, right, through sanctification, but I'm not sinless, which means I need to be aware of my motivations, my impulses, my reasons for why I do this, why I stand up here every week and open God's word and preach it to you, which is why I don't do any of this in a context where I have no accountability. That's why we have a plurality of elders, That's why we have community groups. That's why we have a congregation, and maybe you didn't know this, but you'll know now, who has access to speak into my life. That's why all of this is set up the way it's set up and and how it's supposed to function the way it's supposed to function. I stumble in many ways. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm disqualified because I stumble in many ways. It means I live a life of regular repentance so that I can model godliness of heart and integrity of spirit. It means that I need to be aware that as a teacher who's teaching people on a weekly basis, I can be seduced by selfish ambition, like what we just read about later in, in chapter three, because words carry weight and authority. And listen, I might like that for reasons that are foolish and ungodly. So we want to remember here who James was writing to, because the rabbis of the day that he's kind of speaking about, man, they received just a particular kind of degree of respect and honor that would be really alluring to those who were drawn to that role for prideful motivations. Look what Jesus has to say about this. Let's go turn to Matthew 23. You want to make a hard left. First book in the New Testament, Matthew 23. We're going to pick up in uh, 
verse 1. Matthew 23. So Jesus is talking about the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and he basically puts them on notice. And he says, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you. So in other words, they're, they're speaking truth. But then he says, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Then he goes on to say this, verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Talking about some of the ways that they dressed and they love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. And they love being called rabbi by others. And this is what Jesus says in verse eight, he says, but you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Then he says in 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus was throwing out some red flags and he was saying, beware of those who use their positions of authority for personal gain and lack the humility that needs to characterize their lives as spokesmen for God. Paul even mentions this problem when he wrote to the Philippians in, in uh, the book of Philippians chapter 117. He said, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition. What, you mean like pastors can have selfish ambition, Ronnie? Is that possible? Yeah, it is. And he says, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So Paul talks about these pastors um, that just had competitive and jealous and envious spirits because of the ministry that Paul had. And he said, man, they're really just speaking out of bad motivations. They might even be saying truthful things, but the motivations of their heart are impure. And what this tells us is that it's not uncommon for teachers to speak from impure motivations. So again, some of you might be saying, man, I just, that's not my call. Well, but it is your call to sit under teaching that you need to have good judgment of. And so that's what our instruction is here from James. For those of you who feel called to teach, there needs to be an understanding that you will stand before the Lord someday and be judged for the words you have spoken based on the heart that you speak them from and we will be held accountable before the Lord and it's a good thing for you to hear me say that as an acknowledgement to you let's go to first Corinthians 3 hard right Acts Romans first Corinthians chapter 3 Paul has some things to say here I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 23. I should probably read my notes. That'd make me a better teacher, just tenfold. Well, 
Well, there is no 1 Corinthians 23. I wrote down the wrong verse. Let me just tell you in short what the verse was that I was trying to say and why, again, I'm proving my point about teaching right now. Isn't it funny the way God works? I'm gonna, I'm gonna allow you to write down the wrong verse so that you can, uh, you can actually be a practitioner of what you're preaching against today. But what, what Paul was really writing was about this idea that in the end, the words that we say are going to be judged by God as teachers. And some of those words are gonna be like silver and gold. Some of those words are gonna be like wood, hay, and stubble. If you know what that verse is, don't shout it out right now because I'm not going there. Um, but he's saying, hey, you need to be careful about your words and your works because you will stand before God. Now, Christians don't stand before God um, judged in the same way that a non-believer stands before God, but we stand before God um, on account of our words and our works. And so there is a caution there, right? There's a caution there for those who have been called to teach. Remember Moses um, in Deuteronomy 32, 51, remember Moses had this moment where God, where the people were complaining like they always do, not like us, but like everybody else. And um, they said, hey, we need water. There's no water for the 57th time. And God said, well, this is how I'm going to have you go get water. And Moses in anger went and he struck the rock um, when God told him to do something differently in a way to bring water from the rock. And so in that moment, uh, Moses disobeyed the word of the Lord, but he was a leader. And so God had instructed him very clearly to do something to the people to show them that God was still taking care of them. He was still leading them. And Moses took those words and he twisted those words. And then God said to Moses later on at the end of his life, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel, for you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. Moses was held accountable for how he mistreated God's word and he was kept from entering the promised land. So God takes serious those people that have been called to preach God's word. Luke 12, 48 reminds us, everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So there is a stricter judgment that comes upon those who teach and preach God's word that James wants us to consider and pause and understand. Teaching carries weight. It carries responsibility. It calls for self-examination. And teaching God's word also demands integrity. In 3 verse 2, it says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. What this means is that teachers need to control their tongue, which we're going to unpack actually in a big and fun way uh, next week. But James is not saying that somebody who controls their tongue achieves perfection and is sinless He's saying that the words one speaks serves as a window into the intentions of the heart and the soul. So if I'm preaching week after week for you to forgive your brother and sister, do I forgive my brother and sister? Man, if I'm preaching to you every week to guard against lust, are my thoughts and actions pure? 
If I'm preaching to you about generosity and I'm warning you against greed, could you find something in my life that looked like an obsession with money and materialism and striving after those things if you were to look a little bit deeper? Jesus held teachers to a standard of integrity. He said in Matthew 12, 34, when he was talking to the religious leaders, man, he had such harsh words for them. He said, you brood of vipers. He said, you snakes. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So to the level that we control our tongue, James is saying, we control our life because what comes out of our mouth makes plain the motivations of our hearts. I don't know, does anybody want to become a teacher now, right? The good news is that if we feel called to this role, and there are teachers here in the church, right? It's not just me. But if we feel like we are called to this role, we need to take some things into consideration that James is teaching us. And when we do that, the Lord will bless our words. He'll bless our work. We will model our lives from the teaching of Jesus. And we'll grow in the grace and the, it will grow in the grace of the gospel. Because the gospel will be what keeps us sober-minded about the weight and the responsibility that we have. Do you understand that? If I keep myself just literally swimming in the heart of the good news of Christ, it's going to keep me sober-minded before you guys. It's going to keep my heart motivations pure. The gospel will draw me back to self-examination. We will be teachers who speak from hearts of integrity. We will be humble ambassadors who accept our calling with appropriate seriousness and sobriety. Now, I recognize that that is only some of us. James is speaking to a particular uh, group of people who feel called to be teachers. For those of you who don't desire to be teachers, but who are sitting under my teaching or sitting under other teaching uh, here in the church, here's what wisdom and grace should lead you to do. All right. So here's some application points for those who don't desire to be teachers. The first one is this. Um, and this would be an encouragement. Test my words. Test the words of your teachers. Acts 17, 11. Now, talking about, uh, talking about when Paul came uh, to, uh, to the Bereans, he was preaching to the Bereans, and he said, now these Jews were more no, uh, noble than those in Thessalonica, who he was at previously. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So the encouragement there in testing words is be noble. Be noble with the words that you receive from me. Don't receive them with suspicion. That's not what Paul is saying, but with eagerness. Examining God's word yourself to prove their truthfulness. It may be that I say something that is easily misunderstood because I lack clarity on a particular Sunday, which happens. It may be that I say something that doesn't align well with scripture and I need to be corrected gently, please. 
It may be that I'm preaching straight up heresy and I need to be reproved. Whatever it is, you need to use discernment when it comes to the word that you hear preached from me. And by the way, not just my words. Be careful about the words you let into your mind from anybody that's in a position of authority because these will be the shapers of your heart. Oh boy, have we been in a year where we need to guard ourselves against the words that so freely flood into our ears and drop down to our hearts and call us to use discernment about what it is that we should be believing. I think the church has shown what a lack of discernment that it tragically has and that it has tragically had in recent years. But it doesn't need to be so. It doesn't need to be so. Test my words, test all words. We have a book here of which words can be tested. Use your wisdom and knowledge to do that. Secondly, pray for me as a preacher of the word. Why? Because I stumble in many ways. Pray that God's word would continue to lead me, would continue to grow in me and conform me more deeply into the image of Christ. You know, I really need your prayers. I need your prayers so bad. Preaching is a privilege, but preaching is, is hard. It's difficult. That's not like a pity invite. That's just speaking of the reality to what it is that preachers do. I love it more than anything else, but I have to constantly be checking my heart and my motivations. Like, do I love preaching more than the person I'm preaching? That's the question that I have to ask. Man, I need your prayers so much. I want to be a faithful preacher. I want to be able to stand before the Lord someday and be told, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to be told, you spoke my words, Ronnie, and you know what? The people of substance kept praying for you and I answered their prayers. Sure, you could have done without some of those illustrations and jokes, but they didn't pray quite hard enough for those things, right? I think about the time Jesus prayed for Simon Peter before Peter denied him in Luke 22. Jesus said this, he said, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When you have turned again, when you come back and you're gonna come back, Pete, don't sweat it, strengthen your brothers. Satan wants to sift gospel-centered preachers like me, like wheat. And Satan just wants me to preach morality to you. And we kind of eat that up, right? Give me all these steps of things to do. He wants me to preach conservative politics to you. He wants me to preach with timidity. He wants me to shy away from saying those words that call us to examine our sin and press deeper into the closeness of Jesus. He wants me to ignore grace and mercy. He wants me to come down on you for not keeping God's laws. He wants me to preach in such a way 
that you walk away every Sunday feeling unworthy and unloved and even more burdened down than you did before you came. He would rather me not preach that Jesus cannot bear to be apart from you. Such is the depth of his love for you. He doesn't want me to do that. I need you to pray that I wouldn't cave in to the temptation of preaching sermons that make you feel better about yourself than sermons that allow you to behold the grace and goodness and mercy and love of Jesus. And you pray for me so that he doesn't tap into my weaknesses and cause me to care more about what you think of me than what Jesus thinks of me. Why? Because I stumble in many ways. Finally, give me grace for the words that I preach. I'll be growing as a preacher for as long as God gives me breath. So thank you for having patience and grace with me. Honestly, I mean that. I also ask that you assume the best unless a pattern emerges and you hear me standing on a personal soapbox over things I seem overly passionate about, but they're out of context with the text that I preach. And preaching is important. In fact, um, the pulpit drives the church, which is why teachers need to be driven by hearts of wisdom and integrity and humility and Christ likeness. There is so much at stake in this day and age, isn't there? Man, let's remain a church whose teaching and teachers have eyes fixed on Christ in the cross so that we can face the temptations and the challenges with the Christ of the cross at the center of our very being. Let's be there for each other. Let's preserve the teaching of God's word in the church. I can't do it alone. This is, a, this is a group project. I need to be faithful to Christ and you need to be faithful by praying for the man who needs to be faithful to Christ, who opens God's word and will be held under stricter judgment when I stand before the throne of God, which by the way, and thankfully, is a throne of grace, amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for raising up teachers that can preach your word, that are faithful to preaching your word. I pray, Lord, that I would be that faithful preacher. I pray that the teachers that you've raised in this church, that teach in all other contexts, whether it's with our kids, community groups, growth groups, Lord, they will be held under stricter judgment too. So Lord, we pray for integrity of heart, humility of spirit. Lord, I pray that our focus would always be on Christ, always be on the cross, filled with gratefulness, Lord, for your love and mercy, thanking you of all the wondrous deeds that you do for us, drinking in, Lord, the love that you continue to show to us, reminded and remembering the closeness that you have to us. You cannot bear to be far from us, such as your love for us. I pray that we remember that, we rejoice in that as we leave today. In Jesus' name, amen.